Um, Ligon, uh, Danny, uh, Jonathan, anything for Thabiti from 1 Corinthians 12 for us to begin? Well, I'll begin by saying, like uh, Lig last night, both of these brothers are such faithful expositors, and they're so pastoral uh, in their preaching. I know this is not the uh, conference on expository preaching, but their model of how to do faithful biblical preaching uh, is worthy of all of our emulation because it's faithful to the text, it's theologically rich, uh, and again, it has such a, a pastoral touch. And of course, I recognize some of that comes as they would from having been doing it for quite a while. Uh, but the younger guys that are here, and there's so many, that's what you should aspire to, that yes, I'm a faithful expositor, I'm even prophetic in my preaching, but there's that pastoral touch that is uh, evident that I'm pulling for you, I'm on your side, I'm your friend, I'm your pastor, I want you to excel for God's glory. And, and they're not being preached down to or preached at so much as they're coming alongside of them and preaching God's Word. And I just, again, I'm always blessed by uh, how they preach as well as what they say. Amen. Brother, one of the things that I appreciated was your final danger really that you present it more positively just the need for empathy you know for all the members of the church you exemplify that in your own church in your own ministry i'm thankful for that do you find over the years you've been in pastoral ministry that that um cultivation of empathy gets either harder or easier any experience with that aspect of leading a church and caring for church I, members that's a good question i don't, I don't know that it's um easier Except that... Well, you're getting crankier, so... I'm getting crankier, that's exactly right. <laughs> so it's at least more dangerous to approach you now, I guess, maybe. Well, you know, if, if the church, by God's grace, is growing numerically, um, then that, that's one thing that makes it harder, because you're always having to sort of extend the borders of your love to include more people, right? Uh, and that's a good extension, but, but it does, I think, work against the flesh um, and, and against a, a, a natural comfort-seeking that many of us have. Um, and so in that sense, it's an ongoing kind of work that needs to be done. And as, you bring, as you're getting new people coming in, um, you know, the work of sort of cultivating this in the new people is ongoing work as well. Um, I, I don't know that it gets easier in that sense, but certainly to have people share that vision with you and more of the mass of the church sharing that vision and communicating that. In that sense, it's wonderful. It's richer. Uh, and so in that sense, that, that duty of showing empathy is not merely for the pastors, the elders. That's for all the members for each other. Exactly. Thus your illustration of somebody phoning you about Sam in the hospital. Exactly. Yeah. Just to say that the, your, your point about the, not only the passage that you chose, but your point about the body and membership in the passage, that's exactly where to start exegetically and theologically in the New Testament for church membership. So just spot on, just really, really good. Jonathan? Brother, great talk. Thank you so much. I was tweeting up a storm along the way. Um, one theological comment, one practical question. Theological comment, I like the way you relate the universal and the local church, the local church being a expression, an expression or a manifestation of the universal church. I think that's precisely how 1 Corinthians 12 is working. I thought that was spot on. Uh, uh, what's been helpful for me to think about that is to think about our positional righteousness in Christ 
and the existential righteousness that we must put on, that sometimes we fail to put on, but is the proof, is the manifestation of our positional righteousness in Christ. I think the relationship between universal... Are you saying holiness shows justification? Yeah, holiness shows justification. Or lack of holiness calls into question justification. And I think it's the exact same relationship between universal and the local that abides. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 12. That's the theological comment. The practical question, um, you said, uh, is there any place in my Christian discipleship where there is an active reliance on weaker members in the body? So good. Thank you. What does that look like practically? How do we show that active reliance on weaker, sometimes frustrating members of the body? Can you like illustrate that for me? Yeah, so our friendship. <laughs> you, you, brother, are putting up with the weaker. <laughs> you're, you're always putting up with the weaker. <laughs> No, that's a great, that's a really great question, brother. Uh, <laughs> and we do have a lovely friendship, and, and our love language is ridicule. So, uh, you know, um, no, brother, I, that's a wonderful question. I, you know, one of the problems with the language of, of sort of weaker member is it becomes a kind of label that suggests to us that then therefore there's sort of no value there, right? So it might be as a Simple illustration, silly illustration. It might be that the person you ask to pray for you is the person who right then is suffering the most. Because I, I would assume they're Christians and they're suffering like Christians. Their prayer life is probably being cultivated pretty deeply. You know? So rather than go to the guy who looks like he has it all together and may not be fervently praying for much of anything, really, but he looks good, he looks up front, he's presentable, um, go to Miss Marjorie you know, who lost her husband three months ago and last week found out she's got cancer, the same cancer he died from. And, and she seems a bit broken. Go sit with her to encourage her, but don't underestimate how she's going to care for you. She plays no upfront role in the membership of the life of the church. She's not teaching the women's Bible study. Um, she looks to us like a weaker member. Um, but trust that there's just spiritual vitality and power there that in part is born out of the weakness or the insignificance. So in uh, some sense you're grabbing onto and importing into that blessed are the poor in spirit. In, in that example, absolutely. So just to keep going on this, the, the, the previous point you made to that last one was foster mutual dependence in the body. And that's really what this is part of. Are there other ways that folks can think of, because this is what membership... Church membership, we've been talking about all weekend. This is what it feels like when you experience it, that mutual dependence. And here you have gathered a bunch of people who are either pastors or unusually interested members of the body. We're all parts of local churches where people are not as interested in the body as we are in this room. So what can we do, especially pastors, to foster that kind of mutual dependence? I mean, there's one great example you just gave. Other things would be good to do to create that culture? Well, as pastors, learn to ask for help. You know, be, be the kind of person that actually embraces their creaturely limitations. I mean, sometimes we, you know, 
as a pastor, I think we can be tempted to think because we're the pastor and because we're the example, we sort of have to have it all together. But no, you can also be an example in needing other people. Um, and so one thing is just to, to ask for help from time to time. Maybe, maybe you know, you're building a fence um, as you did a few years ago, a uh, privacy fence for a patio for your family, and you're not a great carpenter. But they're carpenters in the church. Brothers, I, I need some help. Um, or you're, you're burdened about something, and um, you, you need people to carry that burden with you in prayer and in counsel. And certainly you do that with the elders, but you may actually have some very godly friends in the congregation too that you can have shoulder that burden in a mature way. And so one thing is just to, to ask for help. The other thing is um, to, to, make those, um, to make those kind of pastoral opportunities for caring for each other. Have some way of making that known. So, you know, I've learned so much from what you guys do at Capitol Hill with your Sunday evening services and the prayer requests there. There are tons of prayer requests for missions and evangelism, but that's also a place where some tender things are shared. So you had a, last Sunday... In fact, there was a couple in the church um, who shared their testimony having had uh, a number of miscarriages before they were able to have a child, and now they're pregnant again. And they're sharing their anxiety. And they were, well, there, there was a weaker member in that sense, but just edifying the body, teaching us so much about how to hope in God and trust in God, um, and, and frankly, convicting some of us. Uh, through that tender testimony. So create those opportunities. Yeah, I think part of it is, is just breaking through that unrealistic sort of plasticness that's often over our public meetings. If you can do something to kind of break through that. So we had um, a, a terrible situation a number of years ago where a member of our church was raped. And uh, she and her husband decided, it was their initiative, not mine, that they wanted to share this with the body for prayer. Uh, it was a very painful thing to endure, even listening to, you know, I can't imagine her experience. But uh, I knew as a pastor that her and her husband being willing to share that, really wanting to share that for prayer on a Sunday evening, would actually do great ministry beyond just the, the prayers that would accrue for her and her husband but would help people knowing how to, how to love them, relate to them, would cause people to realize the, the difficulties, the challenges, the, the reality of the struggles the other people around them see. And this couple that Tabidi's mentioning, you know, if you, if you look at them from a distance, you'll think, oh, they're a, they're a well-put-together couple, they're doing fine, no problems. But when they stand up there in tears and share things like that, Big, uh, piggybacking what Tabidi said, from where I sit, I think one of the things that's got to happen is many of our pastors have got to have a fundamental change in their understanding of who they are and what they do that follows a biblical model and not the expectations that have been superimposed upon them. I'm not going to get ahead of my message, but it's very clear in Ephesians 4 that as uh, we are ministers of the Word, we are equippers of others to do their work of the ministry. And so we have to ask for help. We have to be willing to let go of things, and that's counterintuitive to many of us, especially if you're a control freak, that you don't want to let go of anything. You don't want to invite anybody in to participate. Well, then, first of all, that's blatantly unbiblical. And secondly, it's going to be very hurtful in terms of stunting the growth 
of your people. I often say, in a, in a good sense, that our calling as pastors is to work ourselves out of a job so that if something happens and we do drop dead tomorrow, our church doesn't die or falter because we're gone. We have so well equipped the body. By God's grace, a dozen men could step up tomorrow at Capitol Hill and preach a faithful exposition because they have been equipped to do so. But that takes you being vulnerable, putting things off your plate onto other people's plate, giving them a chance to make mistakes, but also a chance. And, and as the BD preached so well, they all have a vital part in the body. Every single member of the body has a vital part. Not the same, but they all have something that if they are not doing it, the body is not going to grow and it's not going to be healthy. So many of us have to learn, I'm not there to do every single thing. In fact, I'm not there to do every single thing. I've got to free others up to do what God has supernaturally gifted them to do. But that's not how many of us were trained, and that's not how many folks think when it comes to how the church pastor functions. It's coming back again, the Word does it all. It takes time. But the Word, the Word, the Word, the Word, and then you forcing it out there in that kind of a way is where I think we have to go, or we're just not going to see the kind of body functioning that Paul intended based upon what we see in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Ephesians 4. This is where your talk last night overlaps so well with your talk as the pastor setting that example of being empathetic member, which the body then emulates. You know, and Mark, you've set a good example sharing, say, health problems in your family over the last couple of years with the congregation, having the congregation pray with you through it, you know, doing what he was talking about and he's calling us to. So I just I mean, just to tack on to what Jonathan was saying about uh, being ministered to by the weaker uh, members. Remember, one, there were some who thought Paul was weak. Uh, and, and apparently he had health issues that led people to think of him in those ways. And um, in addition to trying to cultivate an attitude in your congregation where they are empathetic towards those who are suffering and weak in some way, I would also encourage you to cultivate an attitude amongst those in your congregation who are suffering and weak in some way that their suffering does not belong to them. It belongs to the whole body and that there is edification in what they are experiencing that is meant for me, that I need that and the whole body needs that. And you have to be careful who you address on those kinds of issues because some people are so wounded or they're so hurt or they're so discouraged that there can be a bitter reaction. But to the more mature brothers and sisters who are going through suffering and trials and difficulties, it often can help them get out of their foxhole and realize that there is a role for them even in that suffering to bless the entire congregation. And I, I, I want to just amen the conversation that's gone around the panel about how that has been a blessing to our congregation to see. I, the, um, I have preached more suicide funerals in the case of suicide than I care to remember. And very often the parents, the Christian parents in those cases, have done 
profound ministry in my congregation that I never could have done because of their strong Christian testimony in a situation that is as devastating a situation as any parent can deal with. Um, you know, children who've grown up in the church who as teenagers have taken their lives or as early, you know, college 20-year-old, just traumatic situations and yet very clear biblical gospel hope expressed on the part of the mother and the father. In, in, in our church, right before we go in with the funeral, typically the, the pastor who's leading the the service will pray with the family and then we'll walk in together and in one of in one of these cases in a suicide um, uh, circumstance the father who had lost his son who was his namesake when I said let's pray he said I would like to lead us in prayer and um, I almost couldn't get through the service just because of the prayer that that father had prayed I mean he led us to the throne of grace so People in suffering and weakness have an enormous blessing to offer to the congregation. So it's not just us empathizing with them, but realizing the ministry that they have for us. There's, there's a women's small group in our church where two women were in difficult marriage situations, and the elders have been working with one of the women in the difficult marriage situation, but not making much progress, any progress, because it was, it was the difficult marriage, let's say the problem was kind of co-shared between husband and wife and both had a role to play. And the elders were having just a really hard time penetrating to that, that woman. Then in the context of the small group, the other woman, also in a difficult marriage, frankly in a worse marriage, makes a comment about how the Lord had been teaching her to trust him even in these adverse circumstances and that she is seeing his sovereign goodness even in the difficulties of marriage. And her saying that in that moment enabled the first woman to like think, oh, okay, maybe God's at work in my marriage too. Maybe he has good intentions for me too. And so that is to say the other woman was able to penetrate in the way that the wise elders could not right. penetrate. You know, and so you see the whole body building itself up yeah, in love. Absolutely right. right. It, to break through the sense that you really don't understand what I'm going through because you're, you're approaching this from a different position. You're approaching this from pastoral authority. You don't know my circumstance. You're a man, etc. That, that's a classic example of how someone in the body is able to do things for us that help us in our pastoral ministry that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise. Friends, this is the last panel that we're having on this conference. And in case people have not gotten all their questions answered, is there any book or books that you would tell them, you can take this away, read it, think more about membership the meeting? Yeah, I I, I really don't know any better books than the books that Jonathan has written on Mm -hmm. membership, uh, The Surprise and Offense, um, and the shorter version on membership. Love that. It writes with such clarity, illustrates so profoundly, um, and so. So you've got that larger book, The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love, that was downstairs <clears throat> for sale yesterday. I don't know if they've run out of copies, but it was down there. And then the little blue book that you all should have gotten a copy of, Church Membership by Jonathan. The little red book that goes with it, Church Discipline, also related to that. And just one other. Some years, some years ago, I think it was, uh, I think it was Jerry Bridges 
Uh, but the title is uh, a crisis, The Crisis in Caring. Uh, it's just a wonderful book on sort of fellowship in the church and some of the things that we have talked about by, uh, by way of illustration here. Um, Lincoln, other I mean, ideas? No, I mean, other than the, the Nine Marks series of books, I, you know, the, the, the other books that I assign on ecclesiology are, are from a Presbyterian perspective and, and wouldn't do anything but, uh, but complement what, what you're emphasizing here in this conference anyway. So do Presbyterians use books on church membership? Uh, we, well, we use books on ecclesiology that contain sections on church membership. So. But there wouldn't be a book that a Presbyterian minister would think of on church membership? Well, uh, Guy Waters' How Jesus Runs the Church would be, would be one. Yeah. Okay. Danny? I wouldn't add anything. Jonathan? I, I reviewed that on the Nine Marks website. It's a yeah. very, very good book. I think Tom Rainer's little book, I'm a Church Member, is very good. Uh, it's, it's very bottom shelf and, and, and worthwhile. And I think we'd agree with everything in it. I, I, I did. Uh, I, mean, I read it I carefully. I certainly did. I tweeted a bunch of stuff in that. I mean, obviously, not at the risk of sounding like mutual admiration society here, but Healthy Church Member, What is a Healthy Church Member, is a fantastic yeah, book and one right. we give to every member of our church joining. And I think you also all got a copy of that have, one you as well. Receive that. For those of you who are a little bit mis- a little more historically inclined, Greg Will's Democratic Religion, uh, I read in a stake and shake in Louisville between midnight and 6 a.m. for class the next day and was genuinely riveted. <laughs> the stake and shake or the, the book? Well, I'll be honest, both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Reference the Beatty's earlier comment about weaker member. Because he, he, he has you walk into the world of Georgia, Georgian Baptists in the 19th century, not a place I spent a lot of time, um, and it's like, wow, this, these people are crazy, but they're onto something. They, they get something we don't get, and I'm just seeing through this different lens. So that's Oxford University Press. It's, it's a little more expensive, but uh, Democratic Religion by Greg Wills. And, and can I just sort of tag a kind of cultural-specific uh, one of the things I love about that volume is he does also pay attention to the African-American church in the South. and gives great attention there. So if you're kind of from a black church tradition or want to know more about that tradition, that book would serve you on membership and discipline issues as well. We talked, as I recall, about mixed churches. There were and, more yeah. mixed churches going on. That's right. Mark, can I just, a quick word in light of this, and we don't need to chase this, but in light of what just was said and said earlier, I am a stalwart complementarian. But I don't think we always empower and release in our churches women to do what women can absolutely do within biblical uh, guidelines and uh, exercising uh, what the Scriptures clearly free them to do. I also think those of us that have a real passion for multi-ethnic churches, you have got to release into areas of leadership Brothers and sisters of different ethnicity, not just having them in the in the room, but having them at the table and sometimes sitting at the head of the table, leading the conversation, leading the direction, and bringing a real solid voice to uh, the body life. When that happens, I just know that the hand of God blesses it and honors it. And so I would just encourage us as uh, a lot of white males in here, uh, t- 
take advantage of those ladies that God has gifted and are a vital part of the body. And as you seek to move toward a multi-ethnic congregation, it's not just inviting them to, yeah, y'all come on in and join. We'd be glad to have you here. But they move into areas after being trained and matured, which is across the board, regardless of one's ethnicity, into vital areas of leadership where they have a bona fide voice in what's taking place in the church. And just to be clear, so you would want uh, women serving as pastors of churches? No. No, I'm just being clear because when you're saying the word leadership. Oh, when, I, when I'm, God calls men to the leadership assignment in the home and in the church. A woman cannot be an elder, but a woman can do many, many, almost virtually any other thing other than be in that authoritative teaching position over men in the church. I don't have a problem personally with deaconesses. I wouldn't ordain them. They wouldn't have the assignment of being the watchdogs for the pastor because that's unbiblical. But I'm delighted to have Titus two women all over the place ministering to the younger women and teaching them how to grow and mature and be like Christ and doing all the vital things that they certainly are gifted by God and freed by Scripture to do. Ligon, would it be helpful to you to say anything at this point? Because I've served with the Council on Manhood and Womanhood with Danny. Uh, and just to say there are great resources on this very point uh, at cbmw.org. If you're trying to think through the issue of complementarianism as, as a principle or if you're trying to figure out how to put it in practice, great resources, cbmw.org. Guys, I want to I try something. We have a bunch of questions. A lot of people have come up to me at breaks and asked questions, more specific questions. So I want to try to just run through a whole bunch of questions quickly. I'll throw one to you, try to give a good, clear, simple answer. If anybody else wants to throw in on it, you can, but I'm going to try to just do it like that and just get through these uh, to give people some resources. Um, Thabiti, won't having a more demanding membership process keep people from joining the church? Uh, maybe some people, but it might be keeping the people that you want to keep from joining the church from joining the church. I, I mean, you just you, you want you want some real commitment to the body. Um, and um, making the membership practices weaker don't actually increase commitment. It lowers commitment. Ligon, when you were at First Pres Jackson, how much time do your elders spend together as a group doing member care? Boy, uh, to, together doing member care, I, I don't know what the number would be on that I, because what what we tried to do was get them out of meetings and into member care. So we, we were trying to get them dispersed in member care because we felt like our elders were spending so much of their time in committee work that it was actually detracting from their ability to get out and engage one-on-one -on -one and in groups with the congregation. So. I, I'm, I'm not even sure what our, you know, we, we spent half of our session meetings praying for the congregation. So we That's have a member care. We have a, a monthly session meeting, half of which was praying for the congregation, very specifically about a whole variety of issues that wouldn't have been appropriate in a public prayer meeting yeah. to, to pray for. And along with that, you talk through certain situations. Um, and then we had a shepherding subcommittee of the session that would keep the, all of the elders informed about very difficult situations that probably had to meet weekly um, in dealing with the harder disciplinary 
and and difficult pastoral situations of the church. And you said you have all 70 member elders show up every time new members are joining right. for a special right. uh, yeah. a Q&A time. And that's time. six times a year. And yeah. Yeah. Danny, in your church, how are the elders involved in the membership process? Uh, we are set up with a single pastor staff okay. arrangement. And so it's administered, although certain lay people are helpful in dealing with people that do apply for membership, and we have a membership process. So how large is the congregation? We run, in, on average, Sunday, which I'm not there very often. I'm there on Wednesday nights, uh, about four or 500. And so, but does that one pastor interview everybody who comes for membership? No, he has others that help okay. in the process, okay. yes. Okay. Uh, Jonathan, how is your congregation as a whole involved in the membership process? Six times a year we have a members meeting in which usually lasts two to three hours Sunday night after the evening service. The first thing that we do in those members meeting, because we understand it to be the responsibility of the church, and one of the most important things we do is to receive new members and to say goodbye, dismiss, sadly sometimes discipline members. So we probably spend an hour as the elder, whichever elder did the interview, will stand up there, give a 30 to 60 second recounting of the individual's testimony, see if there's any questions. and sometimes there are. Sometimes they're just informational questions. Um, There'll be a picture up with a few facts. Picture up of the fact. Or if there's some kind of a special pastoral consideration that we feel like it would be good to welcome the members into that knowledge. You know, uh, maybe it's a, a certain handicap that requires extra consideration. Recently, I mean, is it worth mentioning the... Ken? Uh, we have somebody joining our ch- a church who who is moving to join our church, and the elders have now recommended uh, somebody who is a, a registered sexual offend- offender. And uh, our child protection policy requires us uh, to inform the church of that, to have them join us in the conversation, and ask the question, how can we embrace this man who, best we can tell, is a repenting sinner, Praise God. How do we embrace Him and care for our kids and and care for Him? Right? And so that's a whole body conversation. Elder-led, but whole body conversation. So it's that's a more extreme example, but, but those are the sort of uh, conversations we'll have six times a year in the church members' meeting. And let me just say, looking at this from the outside, I think it would be a huge mistake if you didn't involve the whole body. Granted, the elders have to take the lead on that, but something of that nature, that, that is something the whole body, in a good way, you have a healthy church, in a good way can be made aware of. We have obligations to our church. We have obligations to him, and I meant what I said, to protect him so that he's not put in those temptable positions because you would do that with someone else in certain areas. You protect him in the same way. Habidi, would you baptize someone and not bring them into membership? Uh, no, not, not in the normal course of things, no. Any other brothers want to say anything on that? Or, ordinarily, not necessarily. There might be rare occasions, but... And I think what we referred to last night, the, uh, uh, or we were in conversation talking about uh, baptism, the Ethiopian eunuch story, that's clearly a missiological context. So the mission field... Things are going out. That's different. But we're talking about established churches in here. 
closest I've ever gotten to something like that and a, a spontaneous baptism uh, was we used to do, in Cayman, we did baptisms at the beach. Uh, so we finished the service. At the end of the service, people give their testimony. And then we go over to the beach, sing a couple of hymns. I do baptism. And uh, finishing up with baptisms that day, had three or four folks that we had baptized. And I see this guy picking his way through the congregation, coming down to the water. And I just think, oh, Lord, don't let him come down here. Don't let because I'm going to have to decide where to baptize this man or just hold his hand and walk back out the water with him, right? And uh, he came down, and we had about a five or ten minute little interview there on the gospel and repentance and conversion and so on. And I spent half that time exhorting him to membership in the church and things of that sort, wound up baptizing him. But that would not be sort of an ordinary practice. Yeah. Ligon, would you bring, uh, would you baptize and bring into membership someone who is living with his girlfriend? No. Anybody else on that? What, what if he feels really bad about it? <laughs> well, I, the, the most, the, the, the closest situation to that was I, I, I was out on a visit with the pastor that I served in St. Louis, and a young woman had been attending our church for a number of weeks. And uh, we went and and met with her and talked about the gospel. And there was somebody puttering around back in the kitchen. And it was a man. And my pastor said to her, because she was inquiring about church membership, "Um, who who is that? And um, she said, well, that's my boyfriend. And my pastor said, so he lives here? And she said, yes. And then she explicitly asked, she said, now, if if I were to make a profession of faith and join the church, would I have to stop living with my boyfriend? And my pastor said, yes. And she said, well, then I, I just, I can't go forward with this. And um, so, it, you know, you're going to engage in a process of dealing with a person about that issue, but you can't ignore the state in which they're in in relation to making a public profession of faith and joining a church. So, you know, hopefully that story will turn out good in some circumstances as you engage pastorally and a person may come to the point where they realize they can't do that or they may get married or something of that nature, but you you can't ignore that state. And you just got to resolve right from the start as a pastor that in such situations you're going to go ahead and be unpopular you know that that the fear of man will be intense in a conversation like that and you just got to resolve that i'm going to be faithful to my lord faithful to this person faithful to the word and i know it's not going to bring accolades uh and it's going to be misunderstood and a lot of other things and that's just part of the cost of being in the ministry and being faithful danny would you bring into membership someone who was baptized in a church that taught baptismal regeneration? No. They don't understand the gospel. No dissent on that one up here. Uh, Jonathan, how important is it to clean the rolls? It's very important for the church to know who the church is so that we can own one another and mourn and rejoice if you're not there and you haven't been there for years. How can I mourn and rejoice with you? And how can you do that with me? How can I affirm and testify to your profession of faith? And how can you affirm and testify to mine? We're living a lie. We're not living honestly or with integrity. So slowly, carefully, context-dependent in part, 
you want to move towards uh, making sure that the people you're preaching to on Sunday morning are the same people who are among your number. Church membership that is not honored and carefully, and I mean this in a good way, policed, is what leads to these horrific Wednesday night business conference stories where people that have no vested interest in the real life and ministry of the church can show up and rave havoc because they still happen to have their name on a church roll and they're recruited to come out and do just some horrible, ugly, horrific, sinful, godless things. So, Thabiti, how long does it take to clean the rolls, so to speak? It can take quite a while depending on your process. And you should do so patiently. There are probably some layers that you can clean up pretty easily. Folks have gone on to be with the Lord. Um, folks have... Uh, oh, you laugh, you laugh. I tell you, we, we took out one member when I got there who was born in 1869. <laughs> Dead serious? No joke. Yeah, yeah, so start there. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, next up, get the folks who've left the state. You know, left left the area. They're they're somewhere else. That that's a little bit harder because still people have affections there. Uh, well, here so in North Carolina, people want to come back and be buried in the cemetery in the country church, yeah. and they can do that only if their name is still on the roll. And so, yeah. yeah. So there, there are connections, long connections that live past death. Uh, so <laughs> start there, but do it patiently. And after you have really gotten the people to understand what membership means and why it's, why it's beautiful. Ligon, you spent your whole ministry at First Pres doing this. Yeah, I mean, it, we, we, I did it for 18 years, and we're still doing it, you know, so. It, but give them some hope. You made some progress. Well, I, I told Mark, when I came to First Presbyterian Church, we had about 3,500 on the rolls, and we had about 1,600 in attendance. And, you know, my goal was to see our membership and our attendance bear a, some sort of semblance of real relation and then have, have slightly larger attendance than our membership so that you've got some people coming to hear the gospel along with your members and your members are regularly attending. So we went from 3,500 on the rolls to, uh, and 1,600 attending to about 2,500 attending and about 2,800 on the rolls. So you can see, you can see we, we went... We, we've still got a ways to go there, but we made a lot of progress along along. Wonderful. Danny, must someone be a member of the church before being allowed to serve? Must they be a member before they're allowed to serve? I think so. I know there's some say, well, that's a great way to get them into membership. I think that's backwards. Jonathan, you agree? Yeah, I do. You don't, you, 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 we don't want to promote churchless Christianity. And by opening up opportunities for service, even small group membership uh, to non-members, we're just promoting churchless Christianity and the ability to come and kind of casually graze in your field. Doesn't that kind of kill your evangelistic small groups? Uh, does, what I'm saying does not apply to evangelistic small okay. groups. Right. Let me say this. If you've got a sweet lady in your church that's a greeter, and her husband's unregenerate, but he's coming to church, and he wants to stand back there with her and welcome people. I'm not going to say, ah, he can't do that. Yeah. I'm not going to do that. I mean, if he wants to do it, sure. But, you know, he's a little wisdom here. But as far as putting them in, again, bona fide type of service roles, no. We kind of had a Roman Catholic guy handing out 
bulletins up in the balcony for 15 years, but there's just a long story with that. So. <laughs> that's, that's, Mark, Mark, that was exceptional, though. Very exceptional. Look, that is because you, you will have in our neck of the woods people who think that it's actually important to use unbelievers yeah. in ministry. I think you're hearing all of us say no to and, that. And that's not a good no, idea. do not yeah. do that. Yeah. So is the phrase bona fide or bona fide? You're the, uh, you know, well, you're the intellectual one. Yeah. Uh, the, so, the so, Jonathan, what activities in a church should be reserved for members? What activities should be reserved? Uh, well, the, the, the services that were, t- I mean, I, I, think, I think anything on the front, from the front, coming from the front, teaching, leading music, I think ushering. So we're talking about gatherings of the church. Yeah, ushering, greeting, things from the front. Residing at the Lord's table? Certainly residing at the Lord's table. Uh, nursery, children's work. Um, mission I would trips. say missions, yeah, I was about to go there. What, what, what else am I missing? Well, we, we contract out sweeping the floors to non-members. Our church does. I, I don't see that in the same way, actually. Any other specific question from the floor about that one? Choir? Definitely members. Members only. Because they're, they're there presumably leading the congregation and praising God. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Thabiti, why is it a good idea for an elder to interview each applicant for membership? I, I think it's a good idea in part because you're, that, that really is the initiation of your shepherding relationship with the person. And you want to, from the onset, know something about that person's spiritual condition, um, their testimony of conversion, um, and be directing and guiding them into the life and the fabric of, of the church. And so, uh, Ligon, what do I do when my Presbyterian friend attends and is happy not to join? <laughs> Send him to me. <laughs> <laughs> We've tried. I can think of, uh, I'm thinking of one example now, others in the past, where they, I know, they know there are PCA churches in the area, they just like our church. Well, I mean, all, all of my people that go to D.C. love your preaching better than any preaching in D.C. Some of them end up joining. Sorry. And they go, they go through the waters. <laughs> they do. <laughs> I, I had another one come up to me on Sunday. And, <laughs> and, and others just can't bring themselves to do it. And so they end up going with plan B, but they would rather be with you. So, Danny, what do you do if there are no healthy Presbyterian churches in the area? You become a Baptist. <laughs> These answers are good. Um, Jonathan, what do you say to the person who's attending but not joining? I'm trying to make it a little more vague here. Yeah, you you start by asking them about it. Well, why haven't you done that? Uh, you know, you, you you try to you try to walk them through that. You respond to their arguments as graciously and pastoral as you can. You ask them, you know, have you thought about going to another church? We think it's so important you be submitted to the church and to the elders that you don't have to, be, you don't have to, you don't have to eat in this restaurant. And go to go to another restaurant and get better food there, perhaps some some place where you're going to trust the leadership because that trust relationship with you and the body is critical to your soul. So if not here, wh- wh- where do you think we can help you find something? Um, finally, if there's a recalcitrance. Just a, a refusal. 
That what? A recalcitrance. If there is intransigence, if there's oh, stubbornness, stubborn. If they're stubborn and bull won't upper. listen to you. Stop, thank you. All right, stop. All right. I, I have to. I have to ask you a question in light of what you just did to Lig. What did I do to Lig? You moved to a place where there is no faithful Baptist church, but there's a wonderful faithful PCA church. Do you join the PCA church? Goodness no. <laughs> I would love them and pray for them, but I would start a Baptist church. All right. <laughs> That's, that's, that's what I did when I lived in Boston. Yeah. Yeah. I would think that would be obvious. Um, Davini, how do you fence the table? Apparently you exclude Presbyterians. <laughs> that's where you start. Yeah. That's not actually quite true. No, it's not quite true. Uh, well, I think you, you give instruction from either the words of institution or 1 Corinthians. 11, uh, it's just really plain there, discerning that you are a Christian, that you are in the body of Christ. Uh, we would use the language of uh, baptized uh, and a member in good standing in a local church. Uh, if you're a member in good standing in a local church and you're able to take communion there, you're welcome to take communion here because there we want to reflect a unity broader than just the unity of our individual local church, uh, but with the, the rest of the gospel preaching body. Um, and then you warn those who are not yet Christians or those who have been in some way censored and forbidden from the table by their mm-hmm. churches to abstain. And I like to invite them to use that time to contemplate what it would mean for Christ to pass them by uh, as the elements pass by and to, to hear that as an invitation and to use that mm-hmm. time to pray and turn mm-hmm. uh, back to Christ. Ligon, what do you say in fencing the table? We, we invite to the Lord's table all those who are resting and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation um, as he is offered at the gospel and who are members in good standing of a gospel-believing church. Danny, the Baptist faith and message says baptism must precede membership and the Lord's table. Why? Because it is the initiatory act into the visible body of Christ. And why do we believe that it is the initiatory act? The New Testament. Where, where particularly in the New Testament? Everywhere. <laughs> and more specifically? Matthew 28. Matthew 28, Acts 2, Romans 6. Repent and be baptized, said Peter. Anything else to add on that, Jonathan? Okay, let's say that, uh, to be back to you, let's say I'm an assistant pastor. I agree with everything you're saying. My senior pastor thinks membership is unloving. Aren't we supposed to welcome people into the church? What do I do for the assistant pastors here? The, the senior pastor asking the assistant pastor here. Um, yeah, I, I think you you pray for your senior pastor. I think you encourage him in the many evidences of grace you see in his life. I think you broker conversations with him. Um, you try to do that in a way that doesn't uh, undermine his leadership and authority uh, in the staff relationship and in the depending on the polity, the, the eldership and so on. So I think you seek a gracious, peaceful way uh, to explore that, to pray through that with the Scripture open, uh, and to work out the implications. If that's a deal-breaker for you, then I think um, you, you need to find a gracious way to exit rather than split the church. 
Ligon, anything to add on that? I mean, that's, that's just perfect. I mean, I, I think, A, your, the, the, your senior pastor ought to know that you take a bullet for him. And once you've got that kind of a relationship, then, then you say, Brother, can we talk about this? I mean, is this something that you'd be even, even willing to engage? So put our Bibles up and just work through this together. And if you've got that kind of a relationship, it's possible that you'll come to a meeting of the minds on that. But if not, you don't want to sow seeds of dissension or undermine the leadership of that pastor. Uh, Bruce Winter's son, Andy Winter, one time was serving as an assistant one place, and he mentioned to me, that uh, he was having questions about what to do. And as he thought about it, he thought of a kind of, you know, a stoplight. He said, you know, as long as you're agreeing with everybody, you know, with, the, with the senior man, it's, it's a green light. When you start noticing, huh, you know, and, and even then when it's a green light, you might think, ah, you know, thing, things could be done a different way, you know. He said, then when, when you start thinking, huh, I, I would do something a different way, that's a bit of a yellow light. Uh, I would do something a, now, and then when you conclude it should be done a different way, that's a red light. You need to get off that staff if it's a significant matter. Yeah. Small matter, no. But if it's a significant matter, that's the time to begin gently, kindly exiting to go elsewhere. That's very helpful. Um, Ligon, another one for you. Suppose I inherit a church with a beloved non-member teaching Sunday school or working in the nursery. What do I do? Uh, my wife worked in Christian education at First Presbyterian Church, Columbia, South Carolina, and she and Mark Ross kind of came in together at the same time in that area, and that is exactly the situation that they had. And not only non-Christians, but non-Christians inviting other non-Christians in to teach, so having the local Buddhist priests come in, the uh, local... Uh, Sounds like Southeastern Seminary used to be. And so they, it, took, it took them... There's, two there's years no to tackle that, uh, and it was very traumatic because it's all relational. Mm. Everything's relational there. There's no, people that are doing that are not thinking in theological categories at all. It is all personal relationships, and so you just have to strap it on and realize you are going to get creamed on that, <laughs> and 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 Tweet do that. what's right. And. Um, now, you, you, you want to make sure that your leadership understands and is with you. You do not want to act unilaterally on that. You want your elders or your deacons or whatever your leading body to understand exactly what you're doing. You're not going off and doing that on your own. You're not going to stick your nose into that without everybody knowing what you're getting ready to do. And then somebody was saying here last night, and I thought it was a great comment because I say this in personal settings all the time, that you, you think... Who was it? They said last night, think about, would you do this if it didn't work? Was that Danny, you? Danny, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's so good. This, that's don't, good don't, think, don't think, okay, if I do this, the best case scenario is, think, I'm going to do this, what's the worst thing that could happen? And then you think, yeah, I'm going to do it anyway. And so just think the worst things that can happen and make sure that your leadership has thought of the worst things that can happen. Major donors leave the church, accusing you of being autocratic, dictatorial, tyrannical, and mean, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. Think through those things. But you've got to protect the flock. I mean, one of the main jobs that is given to elders in the church is protecting the flock from false teaching. And if you've got unbelievers mm -hmm. in significant situations yeah. like that, you've got yeah. it. That's first Timothy 1, 3. I mean, you can't get three verses into 1 Timothy before Paul's saying deal yeah. with that. It won't take care of it, but one thing you can do to, to give context to it is what I did at CHBC when I first got there. We started doing reverse membership interviews. I didn't call them that. Uh, you know, I wasn't trying to see everybody out, but I was just trying to 
get a, get a system where I could meet up with people. And so I started the people who joined the church most recently before I got there and did what was essentially a membership interview with them where I would take notes. But they appreciated it because I was coming to meet them and get to know them, which is exactly what I was doing. And as I worked back through the membership, then I got a pretty good idea of where people were spiritually uh, as far as the members of the church. But then that also would expose, well, why, why aren't you meeting with this person? Well, they've never joined the church. Maybe they've never been baptized. They've never, yeah. So that's, that's uh, one tool. And last thing, um, Danny, should the church excommunicate for non-attendance? I mean, not in your case. <laughs> I am there on Wednesdays, <laughs> and I do send my tithe. <laughs> I think I'm safe. Yes. Eventually, if you say by excommunicate, they are removed from the privileges of church membership. Absolutely. Jonathan? We did it this last Sunday. It's not the first excommunication situation you're going to step into if you've never practiced church, formal church, public removal discipline. You know, you're going to start with the bigger, clearer stuff, I think, but eventually you want to train your congregation to recognize that. Yeah, you can't continue to affirm them with integrity, as we were talking about before, if, if you never see them. So... I don't know, three months, six months, nine months. It's a judgment call, case by case. But eventually, yeah, I think you want to move in that direction. The BD. Yeah, I absolutely agree with these brothers. Yeah, the PCA Book of Church Order requires us to do that. It, it says that if a person has not been in membership, in, in attendance in a year, they shall be removed from the rolls, and that's viewed as a disciplinary act.